0: Consider the sovereignty of God and the mystery of pain again as we wrap up our Amy Carmichael story. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She's the one calling us to live to a higher standard every day and to not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life. As the series continues in the coming weeks we'll hear from family from friends, from others, who were influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Yes, today we continue but also conclude our extended series, Into the Life of Amy Carmichael. We'll think about the sovereignty of God and the mystery of pain. We'll hear from wife, mother, and grandmother, and friend of Elizabeth, Kathy Gilbert, as she talks about a a well-known actor and his reaction to Elizabeth Elliot. As we've been thinking as well about uh, the sacrifices of the Christian life, we'll hear from Valerie Elliott Shepherd as she talks about what Elizabeth taught her in doing her tasks. But first, the next to the last in this series on Amy Carmichael, A Sovereign God and the Mystery of Pain, Part 2. What did Amy think about troubles? Were they in any way necessary? And why was dealing with workers so difficult sometimes? And if you've ever had trouble with co-workers, maybe you can relate to some of what you'll hear today. Hey, what happens if I make a big deal out of my problems?
1: You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot talking with you this time about a sovereign God and the mystery of pain. I've been telling you the story of Amy Carmichael. I do most earnestly hope that many of you are going to be interested enough to go out and get Amy Carmichael's books. Any Christian bookstore, if they don't have them, they certainly ought to have them, but they should be willing to order them for you. One of her books I've quoted from in some of these programs, it's called If... And one of those ifs is this, if I make much of anything appointed, magnify it secretly to myself or insidiously to others, then I know nothing of Calvary love. I suppose if Amy Carmichael were speaking in modern lingo, she would say, if I make a big deal out of my troubles, then I know nothing of Calvary love. But she saw her troubles as things appointed, not because God, who is love, gives illness, not because he likes illness, but because suffering, for mysterious reasons that God has not fully explained to us, is necessary for the tempering of the steel, the growth of the soul, the refining of our faith." One of the most painful things that Amy ever went through was not the accident that put her in her room for the rest of her life, but it was difficulties with trusted workers. There was one year when she had an experience that she called Adria. She was likening it to the voyage of the Apostle Paul to Rome in Acts 27, where he wrote that they were driven up and down in Adria, even to the point of desperation and falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. She said, where the will of God and the will of the flesh are in conflict, there will be rough water. And if the flesh does not yield to the spirit, there must follow the painful breaking up of hopes and expectations, even as the timbers of that ship were broken up with the violence of the waves." The flesh, in this case, referred to two trusted workers who had to be dismissed for deception and disobedience continued over a long period of time. The peremptory manner in which they were dismissed was anything but delicate and some objected. Some of those were asked to leave, some of them left voluntarily. There was misunderstanding in correspondence to other parts of the world and this resulted in deep wounds to the ones who were disciplined and those who had to administer the discipline. This was what Amy called a crashing sorrow, for it undid the work of years. Our white donivore is being besmirched, she said, but declared that she would rather be deceived a hundred times than distrust and misjudge once. She refused to publish abroad her side of the matter, and she left her vindication in the hands of God. To me, that is one of the most difficult things that I am trying to learn myself. I always want to defend myself. I want to be known as having been the one right. I want to preserve my reputation. And there are times when our lips must be sealed, when we have to leave our vindication entirely in the hands of God. Perhaps I'm talking to someone in a similar situation. Are you willing to trust him to bring forth your judgment as the light and your righteousness as the noonday, as the psalmist says? Are you willing to go on under misunderstanding and misjudgment Well, Amy's illness was such that hopes were raised and dashed and raised and dashed alternately. She was in constant touch with the family, the Donavur family, which numbered as many as 700 children. She would give them birthday notes and birthday presents. Most of them didn't have birthdays because usually when these children came as babies, nobody knew exactly when they were born, and so they would celebrate their coming day, the day that they arrived in Donivore. She would write coming day notes. The children would be brought into her room on their coming day, decked with flowers and bringing flowers for Amy, and then each would be allowed to go to a little cupboard that she had there and choose for herself a small gift. These gifts were very simple. I've seen that cupboard, and I think to this day they give the same sorts of things just a little picture card, maybe cut from an old Christmas card, and a little sliver of scented soap. Amy had half-hour interviews all day, almost every day. People came for prayer, for counsel. The leaders came to discuss plans and difficulties. She was writing, writing, writing. She was also praying. She said she felt like a slug on a cabbage leaf, and she longed that the Lord would either heal her completely or take her home, out of the way, where she wouldn't be a burden to other people. A lady once visited Donavur who confided to Amy that she had some sort of a heart condition that the doctor told her was so serious that if she were to even bend over too quickly and stand up too suddenly, she could die. Amy's response to that was, My dear, however, do you resist the temptation? A doctor once told her that she had perhaps not more than five years. She said to him, You would not have said such a blissful thing lightly. I know he might even now ask for longer than that five years, but that there is even a natural hope of that little while being enough is purest golden joy. Only pray that he will take from me all slothfulness." and that I may fill up the crevices of time and truly finish all he wants me to do. Between October 31st of 1938 and March of 1939, it was recorded that she had only eight nights of undrugged sleep. The affliction of sleeplessness is certainly a difficult one, I'm sure. I've never been afflicted with it for any serious length of time, but I'm sure that there are some listening today who may be plagued by that. Amy Carmichael knew exactly what that was like, and you might find her book, Rose from Briar* helpful. It's a book written by the ill, when Amy Carmichael was ill herself, for the ill. She tried to retire from the work of the Donover Fellowship. She was really not permitted to do so. As long as she was there in her room, people still regarded her as the titular head, at least, of the work. One worker said that she was really kept on ice, even though she did her very best to turn it over to other people. Another of her books that I would love to recommend to you is a daily devotional book, which was compiled from some of her notes to the family after she died. Compiled, I should say, after she died from some of the notes that she had written to the family. The selection for July 13th is this. Dr. F. B. Meyer once told me that when he was young, he was very irritable, and an old man told him that he had found relief from this very thing by looking up the moment he felt it coming and saying, thy sweetness, Lord. By telling this, that old man greatly helped Dr. Meyer, and he told it to tens of thousands. I pass it on to you because I have found it a certain and a quick way of escape. Take the opposite of your temptation and look up inwardly, naming that opposite. Untruth, thy truth, Lord. Unkindness, thy kindness, Lord. Impatience, thy patience, Lord. Selfishness, thy unselfishness, Lord. Roughness, Thy gentleness, Lord. Discourtesy. Thy courtesy, Lord. Resentment. Inward heat. Fuss. Thy sweetness, Lord. Thy calmness. Thy peacefulness. Some of you work in offices with difficult people. Here's a word for you. When you're treated unkindly, discourteously, or with impatience, Just look up in that very moment when you feel a nasty response coming on and say, your kindness, Lord, your patience, Lord, your courtesy, Lord. Amy says, I think that no one who tries this very simple plan will ever give it up. It takes for granted, of course, that all is yielded to him and the I, that's capital I, is dethroned. Will all to whom it is new try it for a day, a week, a month, and test it? There's no question but what in that very trying period of 20 years of pain and helplessness and isolation from her family, Amy had to pray those prayers many, many times. She wrote, A work which is founded on anyone on earth is like the house that was built on the sand, When the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, it fell, and great was the fall of it. The only foundation that will stand through the floods is the eternal rock. Sooner or later, every work is searched and tested and tried as by rain and the vehement beating of floods and winds. Her heart's desire was that the thought of all might be forever fixed on the eternal, not on the human, not on her, but on Jesus Christ, the rock, the same yesterday, today, and forever.
0: A Sovereign God and the Mystery of Pain, Part 2, we will conclude that mini-series and also this extended 24-part series later today. First, though, we hear from wife, mother, and grandmother, and friend of Elizabeth, Kathy Gilbert. She has an interesting story of a well-known actor... And his impression about Elizabeth Elliot.
1: Ed Asner is an actor, but he has passed away. And this is what he told Elizabeth. I have been watching you during the flight because I admire a woman with class. <laughs> that happened in November of 1999. I do not think Elizabeth shared that publicly. I know she shared that with me, giggling at that would happen. And what an honor and blessing that that was to get that from Ed Asner. Because Elizabeth was a woman with class. And here's a man of the world admiring this woman of class. Because the woman of class was, the class was not only
0: outward, but inward. Kathy Gilbert, friend of Elizabeth. Well, we're going to conclude this uh, series on Amy Carmichael in just a little bit. Well, as you think about the disciplines of the Christian life, we'll hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard as she talks about what her mother taught her in relation to doing tasks well. Right now, we conclude this 24-part series on Amy Carmichael as we think once again about the sovereignty of God and the mystery of pain. What was so painful for Amy Carmichael related to one of her co-workers?
1: Let me suggest that you get your hands on every book written by Amy Carmichael that you can possibly find Out of the 40 books that she wrote, only 14 are still in print. You might find some of the older ones in secondhand bookstores. I've been reading to you selections from a number of her books. The little book called If is a book about Calvary Love. It was written when she was searching her own heart because of having to dismiss a fellow worker. It gave her great pain, and rather than blame that person, she was asking the Lord, is it my fault, Lord? Is it I? And then it was as if the Lord almost dictated to her each sentence of the book. She doesn't claim that it's divinely inspired. And the book ends with these words. If this were the last time I could speak to you, I would say just these words, beloved, let us love. Oh, let us love. We perish if we do not love. Let us love. The characteristic that people always mentioned as most outstanding in the life of Amy Carmichael was love. I've read hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of the little love notes that she wrote to her beloved children and beloved fellow workers there in the Donavur Fellowship of South India. And she wrote this poem, Before the winds that blow do cease, teach me to dwell within thy calm. Before the pain has passed in peace, give me my God to sing a psalm. Let me not lose the chance to prove the fullness of enabling love. O love of God, do this for me. Maintain a constant victory. Her doctor, Dr. Nancy Robbins, who was One of her doctors, along with Dr. May Pole, told me that Amy Carmichael never complained. She said she was reluctant to discuss her symptoms with anyone, even with her doctor, which, of course, presented some difficulties for poor May and Nancy, both of whom are still alive and well in England. Heat and sleeplessness added to her pain. Sometimes the Indians who cared for her would be asked to read scripture, And some of those whom I met told me that they would read Scripture by the hour. Sometimes they would take dictation when she was unable to sit up and use a pencil. And I think how many lessons they must have learned sitting there in that room of peace, taking down dictation from Amy Carmichael herself. They must have learned all sorts of lessons that they could not otherwise have learned. We're talking about the sovereignty of God and the mystery of pain, I'm sure that God had lessons to teach those who worked with her and for her as well as me and thousands of others who have been blessed by her books. She wrote to one of the members of the family a note to be put into the box that was to be kept until after she died. This is what she said. I don't want you to become so wrapped up in the work of this room, she went on. This was written to one of the women who was nursing her. I don't want you to become so wrapped up in the work of this room that when it is empty, you will feel your life is empty. So don't think of me ever in a way which would make it too hard if you had not me to help. Think of yourself as belonging first to your Lord and then to all, servant of all. Never, never let any human love come first. Then... She wrote words of encouragement for discouraging days, strong words for those who were lonely, and almost every letter that I have seen followed a similar pattern. These letters that were put into the box to be read after she died. She would begin by thanking the Lord for this individual, for his or her gifts, memories of how that child had come to Donavore heartening words to help them toward faith and hope. And beyond everything else, they were words of love. Her prayer for her children is one that I have memorized and often pray for my grandchildren. Father, hear us, we are praying. Hear the words our hearts are saying, we are praying for our children. Keep them from the powers of evil, from the secret hidden peril, From the whirlpool that would suck them. From the treacherous quicksand, pluck them. From the worldlings, hollow gladness. From the sting of faithless sadness. Holy Father, save our children. Through life's troubled waters, steer them. Through life's bitter battle, cheer them. Father, Father, be thou near them read the language of our longing, read the wordless pleadings thronging, Holy Father for our children, and wherever they may bide, lead them home at eventide. She wrote the book Rose from Briar in the form of letters to others who were suffering, a book that would not have gotten written if she had not had to suffer herself. She was stripped one by one of those on whom she had counted most heavily to take over the work. The two Webb Peplow brothers, Godfrey and Murray, had to leave. One of them died, and the other one had to go back to England. And one after another, those on whom she had counted died. I've told you about Ponamal and Arali. Then one day when she was over 80, she had a bad fall in the bathroom. And from that time on, she was even more incapacitated and in greater pain than ever before. To one of her nurses, Alison Wiggins, whom I met in New Zealand, she said, when you hear that I've gone, jump for joy. On the wall of my study in Massachusetts, where I live, is a brass Celtic cross. It has on it IHS the initials for the Latin words, in this sign, a shortened form of the motto, in this sign, conquer. This brass cross used to belong to Amy Carmichael. It was given to me by a missionary who told me that when she was in such great pain that she could no longer pray or read her Bible, she would ask to be given that cross and she would hold it in her hands think of those words, in this sign, conquer. I remember also the motto on the wall with large letters on the wall of her room where I sat when I was working on her biography. It said, I know, fear not. In January of 1951, she began to sleep a great deal. Finally, she went into a coma, It was then that many of the children who had never once seen her face, because she had been isolated for so long in her room, were allowed to come and see her for the first time, as she was in a coma. One of her co-workers read to her John Bunyan's description of the Pilgrim's Welcome, taken from Pilgrim's Progress. Now, while they were thus drawing towards the gates, Behold, a company of the heavenly host came out to meet them. To whom it was said by the other two shining ones, These are the men that have loved our Lord when they were in the world, and that have forsaken all for his holy name. And he hath sent us to fetch them, and we have brought them thus far on their desired journey, that they may go in and look their Redeemer in the face with joy. Then the heavenly host gave a great shout, saying, Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now I saw in my dream that these two men went in at the gate, and lo, as they entered they were transfigured, and they had raiment put on that shone like gold. There were also that met them with harps and crowns, and gave them to them, the harps to praise withal, and the crowns in token of honor. Then I heard in my dream that all the bells in the city rang again for joy, and that it was said unto them, Enter ye, into the joy of your Lord. And so Amy Carmichael entered into the joy of the Lord on January the 18th, 1951, age 83. They played on the bells from the house of prayer, the music to the words that she had written, One thing have I desired, my God of thee, that will I seek, thine house be home to me so ended a life which has been the instrument of peace to countless thousands of people, including me. Amy Carmichael, Irish missionary to India, author of 40 books. Please get your hands on any of them that you possibly can. Fourteen of them are still in print. These are fitting words, I think, to close the story that I've been telling you. Her poem, Father of Spirits, this my sovereign plea I bring again, and yet again to thee. Fulfill me now with love that I may know a daily inflow, daily overflow. For love, for love my Lord was crucified, with cords of love he bound me to his side. Pour through me now, I give myself to thee, O love, that led my Lord to Calvary.
0: Part 24 The conclusion of the Amy Carmichael story on the sovereignty of God and the mystery of pain. Well, as we've been thinking about the disciplines of the Christian life, let's hear from Valerie Elliott Shepard as she talks about what her mother taught her when it comes to doing a task well.
2: When we actually moved to the States, everything practical had to be done well. I had to wash the dishes well, thoroughly. I could not waste water, I had to turn off lights when I was finished in a room, I had to dust even the baseboards, the edges and the window sills, everything had to be thoroughly done and I'm very thankful that she taught me that. But always teaching spiritual truths, especially not to live by our feelings, which is of course what she and my dad had to constantly Uh, remind themselves as they had given up their hearts to Christ and they were willing to go, even if they weren't positive, willing to go to Ecuador, even if they didn't know when or if they would get married. But it was in that last year in Ecuador when they were six months learning Spanish together, that they were more and more convinced that someday God would bring them together. And amazingly, my father even said to her, it might be another five years that we before we can get married, because he was so sure that he'd have to live in the jungle by himself, or at least with another uh, male missionary. But the Lord opened the way for them to get married in October of
0: 1953. Elizabeth and Jim's daughter, Valerie Elliott Shepard. Well, our series has come to an end, and so is our uh, time together today. Let me thank you for letting us come into your home, maybe into your office, or or maybe along with you as you got some exercise today, wherever we found you. Thanks for letting us come along. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. Lectures, devotionals, videos, Gateway to Joy programs, and more elizabethelliot.org Hey, why not leave us a review sometime? Here's a quick one. JRE12 says, Thankful for this podcast, to listen to the wisdom of Elizabeth Elliot. Yes, it can be uh, very short. It could be a longer review, but uh, thanks for taking time to consider doing that for us. Maybe it'll encourage somebody else to check out our time together. Well, until next time, may God remind you daily, yes, every day, that you're loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are what? That's right. Underneath are the everlasting arms.